think about having a perfect family. Now, we know, though, in reality, there is no such thing. We know, there's no such thing as a perfect family. The truth is that families are, at the very least, messy and really do usually have some element of dysfunction to them. The good news, though, the really good news is that marriage and family was God's idea. And God wants to use your family to carry out his purpose and his message of hope to this generation and to the generations that follow. And we know this to be true because when we look at the Bible, we look at God's story of how he has carried out his purpose and his message of hope, it has been through families. That's how he has done it. But really, here's the, here's the interesting thing, though. You'd be really hard-pressed to find a family in the Bible that is not completely messed up. It would really be a lot of work to find that. Yet God used them to do that. For example, um, first family. What happened in the very, very first family? There was deception and there was murder in the very first family. Uh, the patriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith, Abraham, he agrees to sleep with his wife's servant because she, they're impatient of God's, for God's timing and all this bringing a son. So he goes, oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, that happens in, the, in that family. Jacob unashamedly favors one of his sons over all of his other sons, causing deep resentment, which leads to them secretly selling him off. Great family, huh? I could go on and on and on about it. Noah was a drunkard. David, a man after God's own heart, he had sons that wanted to overthrow him. We have Lot, who was willing to give his virgin daughters to appease a mob. Samson, we have Eli, the, the great prophet Eli, whose sons were horrible. They were absolutely horrible. They were priests and they were horrible what they were doing in the name of God. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, had a thousand women in his life. I don't need to tell you where that would lead. It took him, strayed by the end of his life. He had these pagan women that had caused him to stray. So we don't have a great example necessarily in the Bible, but I tell you all of this in order that you would take heart in knowing that no matter how flawed you believe your family to have been or to be right now, God desires to use it for his purposes and for his glory, okay? He does. No matter what you think, no matter how you've been brought up, no matter what, God wants to use your family. So this morning, we're going to look at two, just two important questions, two points this whole sermon concerning a family. What is a family meant to look like, and what is the purpose of the family? Kind of somewhat overlapping a little bit, but what is the family meant to look like, and what is the purpose of the family. And to answer these two questions, we're going to look briefly at two passages in Genesis, uh, in these passages that were recorded by Moses uh, as, he re as they were revealed to him by God. Okay, so by the way, not all aspects of family are gonna be talked about this morning. As I was studying this week, I think I was more overwhelmed with just the breadth of the idea of talking about family. 
So we're going to try to do, I'm going to do my best to kind of keep this kind of focused. It's really, this is more of a general blueprint for how God has designed the family. So let's first look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Say this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, and the, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, I didn't mean to go that far. God blessed them. So the first thing we see here is that man is made in the image of God. We really need to go back that far when talking about the family. Now, notice the God that says, let us make man in our image. Now, who's God talking to here? Well, we believe, I believe that what God is doing, many scholars, and I believe that this is true, is he's talking to the other members of the Trinity, the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what this tells us, and what at least this tells me, is that God his essence, his very essence is community. We've talked about this before. His essence is community or, or family. And out of that community or that sense of family comes created hum- humanity. We've got to understand that. That is where it's come from. The very essence of God came out in his creation of us. One of my seminary professors said this, God is a family who builds a family. I like that. God goes on to say, let us make man in our image, or some of your versions say, in our likeness. Now, these words are very similar and mean a representation or a reflection or an expression. So the cool thing here is that mankind is a reflection or a representation of God. What that means is we share attributes. We share God's attributes like love, like self-awareness, justice, grace, and mercy. Is that cool? Have you ever thought of that? That we share those things with God because we are in his likeness. What this tells us is that every human being has inherent value that is rooted in the image of God. Every single human being. This means that we are to treat all people with dignity, with honor and respect. They're created in God's image. Well, look at next in verse 27. We see that God created us male and female. What he's saying here is that together men and women reflect God's image and likeness in the context of family and marriage. This means that they're, they're both equal in value and importance. A Southern Baptist seminary and professor that I read this morning, this week, uh, Mary Cassian says this. She said, God created gender, manhood, and womanhood to image who he is. Gender displays God. Who we are and how we relate as women and men is an object lesson. It's a parable. It tells a very important story. And the story isn't about us. Scripture says that God created sons and daughters for his glory. And I love this. To display display the jaw-dropping wonder of who God is. That's us. 
That is us. So the first thing we see here as we begin to look at the family is that it all started with mankind being created in the image and the likeness of God. Now, this is important. This is important because it lays its foundation for the vital importance of the family. Now, let's look at another passage in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the, Lord said, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone, amen? I will make, that's not in there, but I like that. Uh, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living, when whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up a place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, first of all, let's notice here that God is the one who brings up man's need for a helper. I love that. I love that it wasn't just Adam. I'm sure Adam was going, okay, those guys go together, those go together. I'm sure he was a bit frustrated a little bit probably. I don't know. But I love that it was God that said, no, this is not a good thing. He needs a helper. It's not good for him to be alone. Thank you, God, that he did that. I'm just, when I was studying this, I was thinking, God said it's not good for a man to be alone. He knew what we, he knew, he knew our need. Now, this word helper here has neither, you got to understand, this word helper has neither a superior or an inferior connotation to it. What it actually, it actually is, is the same word that is used to describe God many, many times in his relationship to Israel. I found that very interesting this, this week. Many, many times, it's how God is described in his relationship with Israel. He helped Israel. He came alongside Israel and helped them. What a huge compliment this is to you women. Big compliment. You play a big role in helping men to be all that God wants us to be. Wow, that is a lot of value. Next thing we see is that the woman is a fit or a suitable, in some of your version, helper. This means that, this means that a woman is complementary to a man, okay? It means that it's just the right fit, okay, in every, in every way. We see here, what this tells us is that men and women are equal in, in personhood and importance, but their roles are different, we looked at all this. We already looked at this back in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want more details on the very specific roles a man and a woman play, the best place you can go is to Ephesians chapter 5. That's a great place where you will see that God really helps outline the, the, the way the roles differently play out. 
What these verses really boil down to is this mutual submission to one another and to God. And here's the real truth. A man and a woman can really only function in a marriage the way that they were meant to function in a marriage when they're both fully submitted to God. And I know that's a big statement I just made. And I know that is huge and there'd be people that would say, whoa, 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 wait a second. But in the biblical sense, in the way that God created the man and, the wo- and a woman, we can only function in the way that we were intended to, what we were meant to be created, if we are fully submitting to God. In her book, Split Image, Anne Atkins says this, before we can hope to be a good husband or wives, we must learn to be good followers of Jesus. We must all become self-sacrificial and submissive. That's huge. This is one of the major, major benefits of being a follower of Jesus. It's not just a religious thing. This is, look at what it impacts. It impacts this thing that our whole society views as so important, marriage, the marriage relationship. It's a great thing. Okay, now I need to stop for a minute. I need to stop and say something to those of you that are single. Now, in no way do we believe that it's God's plan for all people to be married. Don't hold that view, okay? Not all people, that's not God's plan for all people. Nor do we believe that single people are in any way less important or more are unfulfilled. The truth is that we all are created in God's image and likeness. And we're all able to reflect that image and that likeness, whether married or single. Okay, we gotta stop putting marriage on this big giant pedestal that it's such a big thing as far as in the eyes of God, it makes me a better Christian. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Sure, we have a helper and we have all these other things in Ephesians 5 it talks about, but each one is still created in God's image and still able to reflect that image. Okay? This is a blueprint. What we're talking here is more of a blueprint for how God established the family. So in these verses, we see here that man was in need of a fit helper. So God fashioned, I love that, God fashioned Eve out of Adam's rib. I know some of you would probably go, you guys believe that here? And I, and I heard one guy, when I was listening to a sermon on this uh, some other time, he's, he said something like, yeah, welcome to the Antique Roadshow. We do believe, we believe that. We believe that this is, this, this is God's word here. By the way, we must have, he must have been stunned when this happened. Can you imagine? Really, Adam had to have been stunned when this happened because all he had seen up to this point were animals. That's it. He'd been naming all these animals. And then all of a sudden, someone came along that was this perfect match, this fit for him. He must have been absolutely blown away. We see in verses 24 and 25 that they are no longer two separate entities anymore, but one. But this one means they're one emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It's what the Apostle Paul really later uses as an example as the union that believers that we have with Christ. And the cool thing about this, he calls it a profound mystery, this is, a, this is such a truth about so much of what we believe as followers of Jesus. So much of what we believe is a profound mystery. 
And marriage and how that fits and how it, and, and what, it, and what we're gonna talk about when we talk about what the purpose of marriage is, it's a profound mystery. So if you feel like you can't fully explain all these things to people, even to yourself, welcome to the mystery. It is a mystery and we're not meant to understand completely everything. But we're meant to seek God's face in all these things, understand what is this all about? Why am I here? And that's why we're talking about all these basic things, and we're talking about um, the family, okay? So we see that it begins with, so we, what we see here, well, let, me, let me give another quote. Um, once Mary Cassian again this, uh, says, God created manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sex because he wanted us to have symbols and images and language powerful enough to convey the idea of who he is and what a relationship with him is all about. This is why family, marriage, things like this is so important. These are symbols. We gotta remember that. This is what God is using to help us to know him better. God's not trying to stay this so mysterious, like I talked about being a mystery, that, oh my, I can't, there's no way I get him. There are things that he has put in place that help us to understand who he is, and family is one of those things. So we see here that in Scripture that the family begins with a man and a woman who are created in the image and likeness of God, with man and woman functioning in roles that model not only God's likeness, but also our relation, his relationship to mankind. So really what this is saying is that family is vitally important because it is a picture of at the essence of who God is and how he exists in relationship, okay? This is what it's supposed to, this is what a family is meant to look like. It is a picture of the essence of who God is and how he exists in relationship. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on now. Let's move on to what is the purpose of the family? What is the purpose of the family? And for the remainder of our time, we're going to be looking at a very cool passage in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. Now, these verses, you gotta understand, some of you know this, these verses are a part um, of, of what is called in Jewish tradition the Shema, okay? Which Shema, that word means here. Okay, they come, what these, what these words we're gonna look at, they come right after God has given the nation of Israel the ten, ten Commandments, or he's given them the law, okay? He's given the law, and then this is right before they're about to enter into the promised land, okay? So what the Shema does, the Shema calls, is, called, is a call to Israel to be careful, be careful to be obedient to God's law, so that in order that you will prosper when you enter the land, okay? God is, God is setting up Israel for, for success, okay? That's what he's doing here. He's setting them up saying, if you want to succeed, this is what you need to do, okay? And you got to understand, for thousands of years, the Shema has been at the centerpiece of morning and evening prayers for Jewish people and still is to this day an extremely important part of their prayer life. And I believe, really, that the Shema is a guiding truth for the purpose of the family, 
And we're going to see that here. So let's look through this. It's a very important, huge prayer in the Jewish faith. First, let's look at, we're just going to take it verse at a time here, a couple verses at a time. Let's look at the first verse. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I got to tell you, every Jewish person knows this by heart. Every, every Jewish kid. How soon did the Jewish kids start to learn this, the Shema, would you say? If, I mean, strict Orthodox Jews, as soon as they can talk, as soon as they can talk. I'm talking to our Messianic Jew here. You can help, helps me out with it. Okay, yeah, so they hear it before they can. So this is so important for them, so vitally important that they recite this, that they learn to recite this. Every Jewish person knows how to recite this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. They learn this, and they are going to say it. They know it very, very well, because it's so important. It's, it's what's typically recited right afterwards is the phrase, blessed be his name, or blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. What this is, is this is an affirmation of God's singularity, of his kingship. It's affirming that God is almighty He's all-powerful. He's an absolute God. What it is is the Shema is a reminder that God and only God is in complete control and that he can be completely trusted to fulfill his purposes in our life. And you know what? This is especially comforting when things in our family go sideways, aren't, isn't it? When things in our family go sideways, we try to do everything we possibly can to figure out how to fix it. But the thing we need to be doing is what the Jewish culture has taught us here, the Jewish faith has taught us here, is to think about God first. Remember that God is in control. When that child rebels, when that husband is unfaithful, when we feel stuck in a loveless relationship, loveless marriage, when, we're, when that strained relationship with a family member just seems like it's going to never end or ever be healed, we can know that God is in complete control. It's a great truth. Verse 5 goes on in the Shema. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God, we're all maybe familiar with this, with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This verse tells us that God is to be the most important things in our lives and in our family mem- with our family members. In us, as what he's, essence, what he's doing, he's telling us that we are to love God with everything we are, with our entire being, the heart. He says the heart, and this is the seat of our, our mind and our will. It's what controls our desires, our passions, our affections, and our emotions. There's our soul. We're to love him with our soul. This was considered to be the source of a person's life. It's with our very being, with the core essence of who we are. This means, what this practically means is our love for God should deeply impact everything we do in life, everything, our relationships, how we handle our finances, how we discipline our children, our very thought life, Everything, 
<laughs> Yet Moses still goes on and adds another one. He said a third one, our might or our strength. What he's saying is this, our love of God is to dominate. I love that word, dom- that's why I told that dominate, is to completely dominate our emotions, our desires, and our thoughts, and control every action that we have. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of saying, I'm a Christian, doggone it. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to try hard to let my love for God dominate every aspect of my life. Anybody ever struggle with that? Holy smokes, I sure have. We know what we should do, but it's so hard. This week I read about 78-year-old Aleda Hussein of Rotterdam, who had been smoking for 50 years. For most of that time, she had been trying to give up the habit, but she just couldn't do it. Until recently, she succeeded. The secret? 79-year-old Leo Jansen proposed marriage, but refused to go through with the wedding until Alita gave up smoking. Alita said, willpower was never enough to get me off the habit. Love made me do it. The truth is, we all know that loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might doesn't come naturally, does it? It doesn't come naturally at all. The reality is, it's impossible. It is impossible to love God with everything we are without the power of the Holy Spirit, without that regenerated new heart, okay, and that we get when we're reborn and we have the power to be able in us because of the work of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. It's the only way to do it. It can't be willpower. That's why, according to verse six, God's words needs to be on our very hearts. You see, we can't help but have our desires, our passions, our affections, and our emotions impacted by God's word if it's on our heart. So how do we have God's word on our hearts? He says, and because he says in verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. So how do we do that? How do we have God's word on our heart? Simple, simple, by spending time in it. Couple Proverbs here. Proverbs 119, 11. I have stored up or hidden your word in my heart that I won't sin against you. Proverbs 7, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with, with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them in your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You guys, being in places like this, being at church, going to Bible studies, things like that, in order to hear God's word needs to be a priority in our lives. Also, regular, habitual time, reading, studying, meditating on God's word are essential. I can't overemphasize this, are essential in maintaining our love relationship with God. Side note here, I just thought of this. My wife, this, my wife is starting a, a website 
a blog and all that stuff. And one of it is one of the things she was doing is she was um, she's interviewing people about how to maintain. Is it how to maintain or how to have a long distance relationship? How to thrive in a long distance relationship? That's how we started. I met my wife, and two days later, I left for the summer to work at a camp. And, she, and um, um, so we wrote that, you know, pen, you know, paper, paper, you know. We, uh, once a week, uh, we sent letters to each other. Twice a week? Oh, wow. Oh, we were good. Um, so we sent these letters uh, to each other. And I got to tell you, that just absolutely stoked this fire inside of me, this, this craving to communicate with this gal that I had just met that I thought was just amazing. I, I fell in love with my wife through the mail, through pursuing her in that, in, that, in that way. And I say that as an example of, really, if we want to keep our love relationship with God alive and thriving, we need to be in his word chewing on it, meditating. I learned some new things about meditating in God's word this week with a friend of mine, and it just really, really shook me about spending time and letting it be a part of who I am. We can't neglect those things. We just can't. It needs to be regular and habitual. Now, these are very practical instructions that Moses is giving, especially to the original hearers. Remember, like I said, what's happening to these guys, they're going into the promised land soon. If, you're, if you look in your Bibles, in, right after this first part of the, of the Shema, the, he's telling these people that, listen, you are about to go into the promised land, and you are going to experience some hefty prosperity. Things are going to be really good. Remember the land of milk and honey? The guys came back with grapes the size of basketballs, and they were just like, what? What? You are going to have this. Okay? So what Moses is doing here, he's exhorting them to stay committed to loving God in order that they won't stray when life gets comfortable. This is a great warning for us today, isn't it? This really fits us today. We need to be constantly on guard against allowing the very thing that we crave comfort, to keep us from diverting, to keep diverting our heart from our love of God and for his word. That's such a, we talked about this last week a bit. So what does all this have to do with family, Rob? What does this have to do with the purpose of the family? Well, I believe that scripture points us to the fact that the best place that you and I can give and receive encouragement to love the Lord with our entire being and be obedient to his word is within the context of family, whether it's your nuclear family or your church family. Broadening this out a little bit, okay? That's where it happens. Look at what the next verse says. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home when your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. We see here that in order to stay committed to loving God and his word, we are to talk about God's love in his word in our home throughout the day. The home is where life is shaped. It really is. Remember, you know, you know when people use that phrase, oh, this feels, so, it feels like home. 
Okay? This feels like home to me. I feel, or I feel so at home here. What they're saying is it feels, it feels familiar. It feels accepting. They, belong, they feel like we belong in places. If it's homey, that's what it feels like. And this is the place where we're able to learn the most valuable lessons because we're at ease in our home. One commentator I read this week said, home is where life makes up its mind. I love that. You see, Moses understood that the greatness and the well-being of the nation of Israel depended upon teaching God's word in the home. That was vital for it to happen. And he says, talk about God's word and his love when you sit around your home. Where, is, where and when is the best place to do that? Yeah, meals. Meals are the, one of the best places to do and have an opportunity, what I call God talk. Now, before you think I'm getting all religious on you, I'm not talking about this preachy religious talk or having a lesson that we make people go through. What I'm talking about is simply relating and connecting everyday life situations to the grace and the goodness and the work of God, Okay? Just connecting the everyday, like how do we connect that to God's working in our lives? And by the way, this just isn't just for the immediate family either. One of the best ways to get to know and to encourage those in our church family is over a meal. We're going to barbecue tonight. That's why we're having a barbecue. You think we'd invite you just to come and play kickball and stand around? No, we're going to eat together because it helps us to be able to do that. It's wonderful. I want to encourage you guys, I want to encourage you to step out of your comfort zone and invite people in the, in the body, outside also, but invite people in the body to your home for a meal. Or at the very least, go out to lunch after church. Go out, spend some time with people at a meal. There's something magical that happens during meals. Take advantage of those. Don't let the busyness of life crowd out an amazing opportunity to encourage people in their love for God. That's what this is all he's talking about here. Other times for great times for God talk are also mentioned in this verse. He talks about taking, when, when we walk around, when we take walks. I married a walker, okay? I, yeah, whoo. I married, she loves to walk, power walk, loves to walk. Some of the most important things that have ever been decided in our marriage happened on walks. It's true. Some of the most shaping times in my spiritual life have been on walks with my wife and with other people and other men that I've allowed to speak into my life, taking walks with them. We need to get into the habit, I know I do, of turning off the TV or putting down that book or doing whatever we feel we need to do in order to relax and unwind and invite a family member, whether it's church family or immediate family, to go for a walk. And when you do, when you go for that walk, don't be afraid to intentionally ask that person, how's your walk with God been going lately? Or what has God been teaching you? What's God been teaching you lately? Or let them know what God has been teaching you so that you can both be encouraged in your relationship with the Lord. Another time he says, when you get up, when you rise, bedtime, 
probably the best times for our kids. Even although, although I don't know about you guys, so I've experienced, those of you that had teenagers also, you ever realize, ever notice that sometimes your kids never want to talk to you till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night? All the time in our home, all the time. I'm tired, I'm tired. There's a kid on the foot of my bed, wants to yak. Didn't, ignored me all day long. Now, now, they, now they want to talk. But these are wonderful opportunities with kids at bedtime to talk about these things. And a lot of times, I know if you're anything like me, I was like that too. Okay, we'll read a book. It's got to be a short one because I want to relax. I, mean, I get that. But these are golden opportunities. Don't let them pass by. Don't let the pass by opportunity to do that. Praying, praying with your kids, praying with your spouse. I want to encourage you. If you don't do this, I just want to encourage you to pray with your spouse on a regular basis. Do it in the morning when you both wake up. That won't work in our home because we're comatose. <laughs> we pray. My wife and I have made a habit for the last, I can't even remember how many years, to do our best to pray with each other every night before we go to bed. Not because, oh gosh, you got to be, I got I to show an example as a pastor. I got to, or that's going to make me whatever. No. I know that that is going to encourage me in my relationship with my wife and in my love for Jesus. That's why we do it. Okay? Talk, so he talked about all sorts of different ways to do that. Now, verse 8 and 9 he, are references to what Orthodox or traditional Jews were instructed to, to do and still do today. If you're an Orthodox Jew, we had an Orthodox Jew live, Jewish family living next to us, and I saw some of this stuff play out. Look what he says here. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, what they, here's what would happen. They would take four sections of the law. Okay, there's a picture of that. Take four sections of law and put them in these leather, in these cases on leather straps and bind them to their left arm and to their forehead during their morning prayers. I, mean, I went on the internet. I could see all there was, I saw soldiers in the battlefield doing this, Jewish soldiers doing People, this is very important for them to do this. It symbolizes this binding relationship between them and God. They would also put a copy, I don't know if you've ever, this is one I think I, for the first time, my next door neighbor, I saw this, a copy of the Shema in case, in a case, and put it on the right doorpost of the entrance of their home as a sign of their faith. Have anybody ever seen any of those on, on someone's home before? I was wondering, what is this? Is this a note for their husband to not forget to do something or something like that? But no, I learned about that. It was very, very interesting. What I love about these Jewish symbols is that they serve as a reminder of who God is. We need to constantly be reminded and reminding each other of who God is. If you're anything like me, I've been a Christian a long time, but I can so lose sight of who God is like that. Instantly, life throws me off. Life, when life goes sideways, we need to be reminded that God is in complete control and that he loves us deeply. This is the purpose of the family, to encourage, correct, and instruct one another in the love of God in order that we may reflect his image and likeness as to ultimately reflect his glory. This is the purpose. And there it is. That's the purpose of the family. 
This doesn't mean that your family has to be all put together with as few problems as possible in order for this to happen. We already have seen that that's not a prerequisite at all. We all know God is in the business of using weak and broken people in order to fulfill his purposes. You guys, this is the story of the Bible. It's taking messed up, sideways people and using them to bring him honor, to bring him glory, to show who he is, to reflect who he is. Let me encourage you this morning as I finish here. Let me encourage you that no matter what stage of life your family is in, or how messy that you feel like your family is, I want to encourage you, take advantage of ways to, of encouraging other family members, nuclear family or church family, encouraging them in reflecting the image and the likeness of God so as to ultimately reflect his glory. Because after all, that is the purpose of family. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for how you have designed life, especially how you designed the family. I pray for all of us here that all the different places we are in family, whether it's our nuclear family or just our church family here, God, that we would encourage one another how you've just shown us in your word how important it is that the family is used to reflect you and your goodness and your grace. Help us as a church family to be that to Pacifica and the surrounding communities. Our church family would be a reflection of who you are, God, right in the midst of our messed up, just all the brokenness that we are. And I pray for the families in this, within our church and within this community even too, God, that you would be doing a great work, a marvelous work of not feeling like we have to, everybody has to get cleaned up, but realizing that we, are, are to, we can be used by you to reflect your goodness, your greatest. Show us how to do that. Show us how to encourage one another to do that. Show us how to point each other to your incredible and amazing love. And we pray it all in your son's name. Amen. Well, why don't you-